0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two Footed Podcast is brought to you by eplindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five star ratings across the board. So go to LibertyShield.com right now, use the code EPL25 and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router. And any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25, for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two for the podcast on Wednesday, the 13th of September. Uh, today, well, today is actually Tuesday. I'm recording ahead of time. So if there's anything that's happened that I don't talk about, that's why. Um, if anything big happens in the next 15 hours before I'd normally record this podcast for Wednesday, um, I am unavailable Wednesday and Thursday, so there's not going to be a pod Thursday this week. But I'm doing this one for Wednesday because I didn't get to do it last week, which is our nostalgic trip through the first 10 years or so of the Champions League. Um, And I just wanted to have it done. I wanted to have something out for, for Wednesday. So um, let's jump in. 92-93 is the first season of the Champions League. The European Cup has been reimagined. And we go from 1992 Barcelona versus Sampdoria in the final at Wembley, the crowning glory of, of Johan Cruyff's managerial career as his quote unquote dream team. It's a really good Sampdoria team. And there's some really good players in both teams. Paluca, Viejovod, Mancini and Viali on the Sampdoria side. With Barca, you've got Subizaretti, you've got Koeman, you've got Guardiola, you've got Becero, you've got Laudrup and you've got Stoichkov. But that is the last season of the old European Cup. And we are going to have ourselves an L glance at the Champions League. So... What was the difference I hear you ask there were 32 teams same number so it wasn't a big expansion they merely changed how the competition was constructed so in previous years it was just a, an elimination competition two legged first round second round third round fourth round etc etc here we have a first round second round And then we've got a final eight. And rather than going quarterfinals, semifinals, final, they go into two groups. Two groups of four. Each team plays each other twice. And the top team, only the top team in each group, emerges for the final. So, the English representatives in this year's competition Leeds United. Leeds have won the English League title. And again, this is the year that England, English football is changing as well because the, the the Premier League has been launched. Leeds won the title the last of it, season of the Old Division 1. And in the first round, they play Stuttgart. They beat them 3-0 in one leg. No, there's something different. That's wrong. Okay, here we go. So Stuttgart won the first leg 3 0. In the second leg, Leeds won 4 1. But Stuttgart and Stuttgart were, were through on away goals. However, It was discovered that Stuttgart had fielded more than the allowed maximum of three foreign players, meaning the game was actually given as a forfeit to Leeds, a 3-0 win. So the result was a 3-3 aggregate tie, meaning they had to play each other in a playoff, which Leeds managed to win 2-1. Now, if that happened today, you would expect that Stuttgart would just be removed from the competition. But back then, things were a little bit different. Other notable results in this first round. um, Rangers beat Lingby of Denmark 3-0 in aggregate. Milan, Marseille, Sion of Switzerland and PSV Einthoven all romped through, as did Porto. Barcelona beat Viking of Norway 1-0 in aggregate. Not exactly the most dominant of starts to their campaign. So we'll go into the second round. IFK Gottenberg beat Lech Poznan 4-0 in aggregate. They qualify. Rangers beat Leeds 2-1 in both games to go through 4-2 on aggregate. Milan beat Slovan Bratislava 5-0. Marseille beat Dino Bucharest 2-0. Austria-Vienna get by Club Bruges on away goals after a 3-3 draw. Porto beat Sion 6-2. PSV Eindhoven beat AEK Athens 3-1. And then the big shock is CSK Moscow beating Barcelona 4-3 in aggregate. And Barca are out. Barca, at this point, are unanimously seen as the best team in the world. But they're out. So into the group stages we go. So Group A had Marseille, Rangers, Club Bruges, and CSK Moscow. Rangers, at this time, had really been splashing the cash for probably six years since Souness had joined as manager. By this point, obviously, Walter Smith is the manager. Uh, They go out and they sign Trevor Stephen, who, for those who don't remember, was a really good midfield player. Uh, They brought him back to the UK from Marseille. Here we go. Rangers had Andy Gorham as their prominent goalkeeper. David Robertson, Richard Goff, Dave McPherson and John Brown were their main defenders. Uh, Ian Durant, Stuart McCall... Trevor Stephen, Ian Ferguson, Peter Hoystra, Dale Gordon, Nigel Spackman, all in midfield. But up front was where they had their sort of the bigger known players, Ali McCoyst and Mark Hately, both of whom plundered goals. Uh, Gary Stevens was still there. He was sort of towards the end of his career. young Stephen Presley was there. They were a fairly solid team. They draw 2-2 with Marseille at home in the first game, having gone 2-0 down. Club Bruges beat CSK Moscow in the other game. Then Marseille beat Bruges. Rangers went to Moscow and beat them 1-0. Then Moscow and Marseille drew, and Bruges and Rangers drew. Then Marseille hammered Moscow. Rangers beat Bruges. Marseille drew with Rangers in Marseille, Ian Durant scoring an equaliser to give Rangers a point. CSKA lost at home to Club Bruges, and we go into the final, final day. And Rangers have a real chance to put themselves into the final. A real chance. But Marseille beat Club Bruges and Rangers draw with CSKA. And unfortunately for Rangers, they finished second in the group, one point behind Marseille. Bruges finished third, CSK finished fourth. So Marseille threw to the final. In the other group, Milan just run the table. They beat IFK Gothenburg, They beat PSV. They beat Porto. They beat Porto again. They beat PSV again. Sorry, they beat IFK again and they beat PSV in the final game. They finished top, Gothenburg second, Porto third, PSV bottom. But Milan romped through. And Milan looked like the absolute favourites to win this competition under Fabio Capello. It's the all-time great defence to Sadi, Baresi, Baresi, Maldini. You've got you've got um, Reichard and Albertini in central midfield. You've got Donadoni and Lentini on the wings, and you've got Van Basten and Massaro up front. You've also got former Marseille striker Jean-Pierre Papin on the bench. Marseille are no slouches, though. We've got Fabian Barthez, Jocelyn Anglima, Basil Bolli, Marcel Desailly in midf- playing in in defence at this point, he would obviously go to Milan and play in midfield, replacing Frank Rijkaard. You've got Alan, Alan Boxic, Rudy Voller, Abde Pele, and their captain by Didier Deschamps. And in what is one of the duller European Cup finals that you'll see? Marseille win 1-0 through Basil Bolly's header in the 44th minute. A hugely disappointing game for van basten who just could not get into the game at all this was really the last game of his career he was subbed off on 86 then he had the ankle injury and that was it we never really saw him i don't i don't know if we actually did see him again now obviously controversy followed this because Bernard Tappy was found to have been guilty guilty of match-fixing and Marseille ended up in significant legal trouble. They ended up being relegated. They were stripped of their French League title. They probably would have been stripped of their Champions League title if not for some sort of legal loopholes. But yeah, it, it is what it is. Marseille won the European Cup and it is the... Only time they've won the competition. They'd been in one final before in 91. They'd lost on penalties to Red Star Belgrade. Uh, but this was their their night, their time to celebrate. This was played at the Olympia Stadium in Munich, which is a really, really good stadium. Great for these type of finals. Great atmosphere. Uh, we move on then to 93-94. And this, for me, is one of my favourite years of the European Cup. Uh, Some some real quality in this competition. So, again, it's the same format. First round, second round, two groups. But this time, they've added a a semi-final. So this time, it's two teams coming out of each group, and then we get a final. So... Our English representatives that year were Manchester United, who'd won the first year of the Premier League. And from Scotland, I believe Rangers were back in. That's what would make sense to me. But I'm struggling to find them. Did they not qualify? They did, surely. Hang on. Rangers... They did. They got dumped out in the first round. Oh, there they are. There they are. Right. So, yeah, Rangers go out in the first round, losing on aggregate to Lesky-Sofia. Manchester United scraped by Kisbed honved um, Better known as as Honved now. But, yeah, scraped by. 5-3 in aggregate. 3-2 in one game, 2-1 in the other. Uh, Ireland's representatives, Cork City. Put up a decent showing, lost 2-1 and 1-0 to Galatasaray, so 3-1 on aggregate. Then we get into the second round. Porto beat Feyenoord 1-0. Monaco beat Stoia Bucharest 4-2. levski sofia beat Werder Bremen. No, Werder Bremen beat levski sofia 3-2. Um, Milan beat Copenhagen 7-0. Andelect beat Sparta Prague 5-2. United go out on away goals to Galatasaray. This is the infamous welcome to hell game where United go to play over there and are greeted at the airport with signs that said welcome to hell. And the atmosphere notably shook some of the United players. Uh, Spartak Moscow beat Leg Poznan and Barcelona beat Austria-Vienna 5-1 on aggregate. So, Group A... We've got Barcelona, Monaco, Spartak and Galatasaray. Group B, we've got Milan, Porto, Werder and Anderlecht. Monaco beat Spartak 1-0. Barca and Galatasaray draw 0-0. Barca then beat Monaco. Spartak and Galatasaray draw. Monaco beat Galatasaray. Spartak and Barca draw 2-2. Galatasaray lose at home to Monaco 2-0. While Barcelona beat Shakhtar, sorry Spartak, Shakhtar Spartak five one, um, Moscow and Monaco draw nil nil, Barca beat Galatasaray three 0 Monaco nil, Barcelona one, Galatasaray one, Spartak Moscow two. Barca go through top, fairly convincing, fairly comfortable. Four wins, two draws, ten points, thirteen goals scored, three conceded. Monaco finished second. And Spartak and Galatasaray go out. In Group B, Milan are less convincing than they had been a year before. They draw with Anderlecht. Then they beat Porto. Then they beat Werder. Then they draw with Werder. Then they draw with Anderlecht. And then they draw with Porto. Porto beat Verder lose to Milan lose to Anderlecht beat Anderlecht beat Verder and draw with Milan so Milan go through top with 8 points Porto finish on 7 points and Werder and Anderlecht go out in the semi-finals then we get Milan against Monaco and Milan progress These are one-off games. No no two-legged nonsense. One-off games, semi-final and final. The top team, their advantage was they got to host their semi-final. So Milan hosted Monaco and beat them 3-0 and Barca hosted Porto and beat them 3-0. And we get what many people view as the dream final. These are the two best teams around. The best of Italy versus the best of Spain. This... Capello-led Milan that have won European Cups under a previous manager have come close by getting to the final the year before. They've got this otherworldly defence. They're incredibly solid. They're tactically very smart. And then there's Cruyff's dream team, which, I mean, I think he gave it that name, but they're idolised for how they play football. You know, they're like an early version of what we see from City now. Um, Zubizaretta, Ferrer, Guardiola, Kuman, Nadal, Becerro, Sergi, Stoichkov, Amor, Romario, and Begerstein. Currently, the director of football at City. I mean, there's just Laudrup is gone. He'd moved on to uh, to um, Real after winning multiple league titles. With Barca, he was deemed no longer vital. You could only have three foreigners at the time. So in Kuman and Steutkopf, that was the two for Barca, along with Laudrup. They signed Romario, someone has to go. And the decision was made that it would be Laudrup. It's the wrong decision as far as I'm concerned. He would go on and be brilliant for Real for a couple of years, including leading them to a league title and ending... Barca's stranglehold on the La Liga uh, crown. There's some some immensely good players there. I mean, Nadal was always a favourite of mine. Just a proper hard-nosed defender. Brave, strong, dominant. Would boot people up in the air. Was known for kind of being a bit of a hard man. And at times could be a little bit rash. Baccaro I always liked. Thought he was very, very good. Uh, Ferrer and Sergi. Are kind of the the picture of Spanish fullbacks. Short, the right back really strong defensively. The left back less strong defensively, really good on, on the overlap. A uh, picture Carvial and Alba, and that's basically what you've got. Obviously, Stoychkov. I mean, not enough gets said about Risto Stoychkov. He doesn't get talked about nearly often enough, in part because he had a ridiculous temper and got himself in trouble and fell out with people, in part because the prime of his career, that five-year spell at Barca the first time around, went by in the blink of an eye. He was 24 coming out of Bulgaria. And obviously Bulgaria had been behind the Iron Curtain. And with the fall of communism, it opened up this new world of players that previously hadn't been available. And Barca swooped in, got Stoichkov. Everybody already knew about him. He'd been involved in multiple incidents that threatened to derail his career. So we go back in time to 1985 and Stoichkov gets in a fight in the 1985 Bulgarian Cup final and is eventually banned for life from playing football, such as the way in 1985 Bulgaria. It's eventually reduced to a one-year ban, but you're still talking about the best young player in the country by a country mile being banned from playing for a year. When he moves to Barcelona, he stamps on a referee's foot and gets suspended for two months. They just couldn't get out of his own way. When they were linked with Romario, he publicly said that Romario wasn't good enough to play for Barcelona. Now they eventually, when Romario got there, had an unbelievable link-up. But he wanted them to sign. He wanted them to sign a Bulgarian fellow, who I want to say at the time played for Valencia. Oh, that will annoy me. Um, I think I assume he would have played at the nineteen ninety-four World Cup. Let's see. I can't think of the guy's name. It's not Ivanov. That's the defender. Um, Bulgaria, Bulgaria. There you go. Wasn't Lechkov. Wasn't Kostadinov. Don't think it was him. Hang on. Uh, 1993 Valencia. I think he was at Valencia. I could be completely wrong. Yes. Lubaslev Penev. That's who That's who he wanted to sign. Lubaslev Penev. He said he'd pay for it himself if they were going to be bringing in the striker. Um and said they brought in Romario. So it turned out they did pretty well. But I mean he was always tagged as you know the maradona of whatever part of the world. I can never figure out which he was and which which Hadji was. But he just had this incredible left foot where he needed no backlift at all, the ball would explode off his foot. He had incredible aim, incredible accuracy. He could beat people on the dribble. He was quick. Didn't look it, but was quick. If he played now, I think he'd probably play as a right winger who cuts inside onto his, uh, onto his left foot. But he could just beat a man and whip a cross in. He, he could play very, very simply. He didn't have to do anything out of the ordinary. He could make the game very simple and very effective. His temper was was largely what held him back and I think kind of blotted his copybook for a number of people. But he won the Ballon d'Or in 94. Now, in my opinion, Baggio was the very clear Ballon d'Or winner that year. But because he missed the penalty, I think Baggio got hammered for it. But I have no real argument against Shtoichkov. He was an incredible player. Um, There was that spell where him and Hadji were together at Barca and they were, they were great fun to watch, even if Hadji never really, never really settled at Barcelona. Um, Steutkopf would leave, go to Parma for a year, didn't seem to like life in Italy, went back to Barca for a couple of years and then kind of became a bit of a journeyman. Played for Al-Nazir, played in Japan played for Chicago Fire, and then played for DC United. He's undeniably the greatest Bulgarian player of all time. And that that 94 Bulgarian team had so much talent led by him, and it's sad to see how how poor they are now. Uh, Also in that team, obviously, is Romario, who it's just pure joy to watch him play absolute joy to watch him go about his business in the penalty box. He comes from Vasco da Gama to PSV Eindhoven and just plunders goals left and right. The thing is, so many people think Romario and immediately think Barcelona, but he was only there for two years. He was only there two years. And then he went back to South America for a year to Flamengo he came back to Valencia and then he just went on a a rambling tour of Brazil. Played for Flamengo, played for Vasco da Gama again, played for Fluminense, played for Vasco da Gama again. Then he played for Miami FC when they were in the old NASL. Then he went back to Vasco da Gama. But like 2007, he's still banging in goals at 40-odd for Vasco. Just one of the greatest goal scorers of all time. 690 confirmed goals at club level, another 55 at international level. He claims he scored over a thousand, but I mean, he's including training ground matches and stuff the same way Pele did. But he just lived to score goals and embarrass defenders. Short, powerful, explosive. Ridiculously skillful, has ha, arguably the best first touch I've ever seen. Arguably the best first touch I've ever seen. Could just manipulate the ball in a way that very few have. Incredible player. In that final, though, Milan wiped the floor with Barca. Absolutely wiped the floor with them. Massaro scores on 22 and just before half time. Savitri scores just after half time and then Desi wraps it up. That that Milan team, like the back four, is missing on the night. Is missing Costa, Curta, and Barresi, uh, both suspended. Panucci comes in at left back. Maldini goes to centre back next to Filippo Galli. Filippo Galli, one of the the great underrated defenders, who spent the vast majority of his career with Milan, could have gone anywhere else and started, but preferred to stay with Milan and was a, a Milan club man. Up until five years ago or so when he when he left uh left his coaching role. But yeah, just just adored life at Milan and was happy to be the fifth defender and could fill in anywhere. That was kind of his brilliance. Yeah. 4-0, Capello gets his, his Champions League. And we move on to the ninety-four-95 season. Now, things change. This season, we have a qualifying round, but we also then just have four group stages, followed by quarterfinal, semi final, final. So much more similar to what we have now, just on a smaller scale. So we won't even bother with the qualifying round. We'll go straight into the groups Group A, Gothenburg, Barcelona, Manchester United, and Galatasaray. So United and Galatasaray renewing rivalries here. Gottenberg finished top of the group in one of the great upsets. Gottenberg finished top of the group. Uh, they beat United three one away, a uh, three sorry three one at home away for United, and that game was played in a way. I can I remember watching the game, and I remember the pitch. I remember the, the stands. It looked like a cycling velodrome, the way the stands kind of pitched and then flattened it back out. I don't think that stadium is still in use anymore. Um, the Olevy, I don't think it's in use anymore. But I remember watching that game and I remember watching Jesper Blomqvist and thinking, this is the best player in the world. This, this guy's unbelievable. And he'd been brilliant against Barca, which is when he sort of, had announced himself. United had beaten Gothenburg in the first game. Um, And then I remember watching Gottenberg, Barcelona, and this Blomquist kid scored a late, late winner. And then I didn't see him again until they played United in the November, which is like two months later. And he was unbelievable. He just tore United apart over and over and over again. Every time they fed him the ball, the crowd was up. They were just they were magnificent that night. They beat United 3-1 and they earned their spot top of the group. Four wins and a draw. Nine points. Two points for a win at this stage in the European Cup. Barca finished second. United finished third and go out on goal difference. And Galatasaray finished bottom. Uh, in Group B, Paris Saint-Germain, Bayern Munich, Spartak and Dino Kiev. So, you know, when people... When people say, oh, well, you know, nobody cared about PSG in the 90s, and who were they before all this money? It isn't really true. Like, they were a big club in the 90s. They did have a lot of good players. They did spend a lot of money. You know, and in this team, for example, you have the great George Weah, who I've talked about a bunch of times. You've got Paul Le Guen, who was an outstanding midfielder. Alan Roche, who was a good defender. You've got Didier Domi, who would develop into a a decent left back and play for Newcastle and then Leeds. And you've got Rai. Now, if you don't remember, going into the 1994 World Cup, Rai was the captain of the team. So he's the leader of the national team. And Brazil are not firing on all cylinders, shall we say, through the group stage. He doesn't play particularly well. And when they get to the, court, to, the, to the knockout stage, he gets dropped. And Dunga takes over as captain. Now, he played in the quarterfinals and semifinals coming off the bench, but he didn't get the armband back. Dunga was made captain. They didn't just say, right, you're captain unless he's on the pitch or you're captain until he comes back in. It was Dunga, you're now captain. That's a huge decision to make in the middle of an international tournament. And it could have been detrimental. Like, Rai could have kicked off. He was a very influential, experienced player. But he didn't. He accepted it. And the funny thing is, that picture of Dunga lifting the World Cup in 94 is, is iconic. And Dunga is viewed as an iconic Brazil captain. But he wasn't even captain going into the tournament. And Rai was a great goal-scoring midfielder. Really, really talented. 6'2", very, very elegant. A little bit like Michael Ballack, Um, Similar type of build. Actually kind of looks a little bit like Michael, Michael Ballack as well. Um, but yeah, PSG were 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 a real team back then as well. They weren't just a creation of Qatar in the uh the mid 90s, or the mid two thousands rather. Um where was I going with this? Oh yeah. So uh PSG topped the group 12 points, six wins from six, Byron second, Spartak third, and Dinamo Kiev fourth. In group C, it's Benfica, it's Hajduk Split, it's Stoja Bucharest and it's Anderlecht. Stoja obviously had some great history having won the European Cup in the 80s. Anderlecht have always been a historic club. Hadzic were, a lot, a lot of these Eastern European teams are still emerging, especially in what was known as, you know, the former Yugoslav states. Uh, clubs like Hadzic Split, Dinamo Zagreb, clubs like that, they were only starting to really find their feet again after the fall of Yugoslavia. The, the Serbian clubs, the, the two Belgrade clubs, have been the first ones kind of out of the gap. And since then, there's probably been a bit more prominence around Zagreb. But Hajduk have always been been a pretty decent team. Uh, group D, Ajax topped the group, Milan second, Casino Salzburg, who you'll know as Red Bull Salzburg, and AEK Athens. Um, I've been over this recently when talking about Capello. Ajax topped the group, winning both games against Milan. Um, Milan really struggled, but they come through in second place, and that's going to have to do them. We go into the knockout stage, and it's Bayern against Gothenburg, and the magic just disappears on Gothenburg. And Bayern are through. Ajax beat Hadrick, split fairly comfortably get themselves through. Barca against PSG. uh, PSG surprised Barca. Knocked them out 3-2 in aggregate. Milan, find a bit of form, get past Benfica. So here we are, 1995 and Paris Saint-Germain are European Cup semi-finalists. Now, if I'm not mistaken, they've only been further than that once since when they lost the final to Bayern Munich. But Milan knocked about here and it sets up Milan versus Ajax who beat Bayern in the final. And this is a great final. And I talked about it recently. There's just, so many fantastic players on both sides here. You look at that Ajax team, and we've talked about Milan in the past, so we can leave them, but that Ajax team, Edwin van der Sar, one of the best goalkeepers the game's ever seen. Michael Reitziger was a brilliant lockdown right back. He would go on and play for Milan and then Barcelona. I believe he left on a free. Couldn't settle at Barca. Or at Milan or that. He was seeing, like, when when they signed him, the idea was that Maldini was going to move to centre-back to replace Baresi. Now, this is, again, this is what was said after the fact by managers and players that were involved. Panucci was going to move from right-back to left-back because he was more comfortable defending as a left-back. Maldini was going to move left-back to centre-back. Baresi was to retire and Reitziger was to come in and basically be the Tessati replacement as that locked-down right-back. And they felt like that was the best way to replicate what they'd had. Costa-Curta was going to continue on, Maldini was happy to play centre-back, and Panucci was more comfortable at left-back. And in fairness, given he's a right-footer as well, Maldini was a right-footer back, a right footer who played at left-back, so they were used to that and used to working with players on developing them, but he couldn't settle. He went to Barca. He had a decent career at Barca. Uh, Then he played for Middlesbrough for a year and finished off at PSV. Uh, Michael Reitziger was always very, very good. Danny Blind had a great career, spent the early parts of it with Sparta Rotterdam and at 25 joined Ajax, played there for 13 years, won everything there was to win with them has since been manager of both Ajax and the Netherlands to not much success. Playing for Ajax, he won five league titles, a Cup Winners' Cup in 87, a UEFA Cup in 92, and the Champions League in 95. There's very few players have the full set, and he's one of them. And his partnership in the middle of defence with Rijkaard. And Rijkaard, that was a, a strange shape. It was a four-back four that became a three and a one. So Rijkaard, when they had the ball, Rijkaard would step out and basically act as a sitting midfielder. And when they lose the ball, either he would drop back into centre-back or Frank De Boer would tuck in and Edgar Davids would drop to left-back. So they were very clever in how the defence worked. Depending on where the ball was coming from and how short the transitions were, if it made more sense for Blind to go right centre-back, right uh, De Boer to go left centre-back, and Davids to come back in at left-back, they would just do that. And then everybody else would shuffle and make make sense of it. This system was so flexible. And Louis van Gaal has never reached this level since. Like, he... He had football mastered at this point. Everything about that team was brilliant. Lippmannen behind De Boer. Lipmanen could get beyond De Boer and score goals. De Boer could drop into midfield and be creative. Lippmannen could play back to goal. De Boer could play back to goal. So they were always able to just swap players and have people in different areas. And then the two key roles in this system are Davids and Sedorf Because what I said about Davids going to left-back would also happen if the defence needed to shift the other way. De Boer would be the left-back, Blind would play left-centre-back, Reitziger would go right-centre-back, and Sadoff would drop in. And Rijkaard could just sit in front. Now, the ideal, what they preferred to do was Rijkaard would drop back behind or beside Blind, and then Sadoff and Davids would tuck in as a two. And it would go from 3-1, 3-3... To four two three one, very very easily they could go to four four two, very very easily four five one. It didn't really matter to them. They could just make it work. They were so adaptable, multifunctional players. This was total football. This is what this was. This was total football, and they were incredible that year. When you consider they lost so many of that team on Bosman's, it, it's. It's little wonder that it took them a long time to recover. Um, obviously, Clivert gets the only goal of the game coming off the bench. Scores in the 85th minute. Milan were unlucky, but to be fair, Ajax have been the best team in Europe that season, and, and nobody could really deny them their success. I've realised that I've become, I'm, I'm waffling a lot today, so I'm probably not going to get through 10 years. So I think that's three. So we'll do Five. And uh, and we'll leave it at that for today. Uh so ninety-five, ninety-six then is up next. And again, it's the same layout as the previous year, qualifying round, and then into four groups, two teams out of each group, quarter final, semifinal, and final. Group A, ithos Nons, Portal, and AB or Alberg from um, Denmark. Panik and Itos, again, this is my first exposure to them. And if I'm not mistaken, they played their games at the National Stadium. Let me just see. Yeah, they played at the Olympic Stadium. And it was just a sea of green. And obviously, being Irish, you're always going to be drawn to that type of thing. And look, their badge is a, is a shamrock. So there's there's got to be some sort of Irish connection there that I'm, I'm actually surprised I've never really looked into. But I must look into it. Um, what actually happened here in this group, what was, uh, which was weird, and again, just the type of thing that happened back then that was a little bit different to what would happen now. So initially, Dinamo Kiev were in the competition and they were in the competition in place of Albert, Albert. They were banned <laughs> following an attempt to bribe a referee. So they beat Panik and 1-0 in the first game. The game had to be annulled because you just you couldn't have it that way. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, it ended up having that Alberg were brought, brought in as a late replacement with the group already started, brought in to replace Kiev. Insanity. Imagine the scandal if that happened now where a team was called trying to bribe a referee. Um, Panacol has finished top anyway. Ahead of Nantes, who finished in second, Porto or third, and who you know weren't really good enough to be in the competition. Anyway, they find their way in. I'm not a hundred percent certain why they were the team that was called up, because I mean I know they'd been they'd lost to Kiev. I suppose that's just it. Kiev had, had whooped them in the, in the um, qualifying round. So yeah, I suppose it made sense to bring them in, but they weren't the best available team to come in and they were never going to pose a real threat to anybody. In Group B, Spartak Moscow, Lezzy Warsaw, Rosenberg and Blackburn Rovers are our English entrant. And Blackburn finished bottom of their group and, you know, frankly, quite embarrassed the whole league. With their performance. If you got that group now, if you were the English champions and you got that group now, people would accuse you of having handpicked the group to get Spartak, Legia Warsaw and Rosenberg. But back then, I mean, they were a bit more formidable. You didn't know as much about them is the thing. It was harder to prepare for these teams and the travel was a bit tougher. So Spartak and Legia get through. Uh Group C, we get Juventus, we get Dortmund, and we get stoya Bucharest, along with Rangers, and Rangers get, well, pummeled, really, and finish bottom of their group. Juventus smacked the life out of them. Um Dortmund beat them as well, I believe. No, Dortmund drew with them twice, did they? Dortmund drew with them twice. Rangers got three draws, three defeats. Um Juve go through, Dortmund second, Stoya in third. Uh Group D then Ajax, Real Madrid. First mention of them since we started chatting. Uh Ferenc Varrosh and Grasshopper, Ajax top, Real second, and uh Ferenc third, Grasshopper fourth. Not exactly uh murderer's role in this group stage, to be fair. Not exactly jumping out of the seats to go and get tickets to some of these games. But in the knockout stage, obviously, it did get a bit more competitive. So in the quarterfinals, Real Madrid faced Juventus. Real won the first leg 1 0. Juventus won the second leg 2 0. And Juve claimed victory 2 1. Non speech Spartak 2 0 in the first leg. The second leg ended in a draw, so Nantes go through. Ajax beat Dortmund home and away. Legia and Panikonitos drew 0-0, and then Panikonitos beat them 3-0 in the second leg. In the semifinals, Juve beat Nantes 2-0 in the first leg. Nantes beat Juve 3-2 in the second leg and almost pull off the great recovery. Now, Juve still would have had the away goals in their favour, but this is how Juve came fairly close to not even making the final. Um, in the other semi-final, panic and Itos went to Ajax and won the first leg 1-0, and then Ajax managed to um, pull off the upset and come back and win 3-0. Uh, upset's the wrong word, but they, they upset me at the time. Um, they upset me and they upset all the good Greek people. Beating Panic and Ithos 3 0 in the second leg, two from Yari McMahon, really set them on their way. So to the final we go. And this is a heralded Ajax team who've won the competition the year before. They've returned almost the full team, couple of exceptions. So out. Clarence Seedorf, he'd gone to Sampdoria, would only stay there a year and then would go to Real Madrid. Ronald De Boer dropped from the number nine spot to play in midfield, where he was more comfortable. And into the team came Nwankwo Kanu, a young, gangly striker. A little bit of a surprise that he got the nod over Patrick Clivert, who was seen as you know one of the, the big up-and-coming stars in world football and had scored the goal the year before. Out also Frank Reichardt, who'd retired at the end of the previous season. Frank De Boer had stepped across into his position and Winston Bogart came in at left back. Now, Bogart at this point was good, but he was never on the same level as all the rest of them. The other change from the final the year before is Sonny Soloy starts at right back because Michael Reitziger's injured. And that's a huge blow for Ajax. Now, the Juve team, Angelo Peruzzi in goal, one of my all-time favourites. Great shot stopper, bit of a head case. Came through at Roma, didn't really make the grade there. Became a star with Juve. Uh, Took the national team shirt off of Paluca, but then would end up losing it to Buffon. Um, Never had real success on the international stage. I think he missed a couple of international tournaments through injuries or or whatever the reasons were Milan uh, Italy didn't qualify I don't think in 92 in 94 it was Paluca in 96 I'm fairly certain it was him I'm fairly certain it was him Yeah he was the goalkeeper in, in 96 um he got injured for the 98 world cup and Paluca was called up and then by the time Euro 2000 came around, Buffon and Taldo had taken over and that was all she wrote. Um, would play for Inter for a year and then for Lazio and had a really good run at Lazio, to be fair. Chiro Ferrara, one of the great centre-backs, Gianluca Passato, uh, uh, Marino Torricelli as full-backs. Good, not great. Pietro Viejovod, one of the most underrated defenders of all time. And that centre-back pairing of Ferrara and uh, Viejovod were very, very underrated. Now, part of that was their ages. Uh, Viejovod, at this point, is already like 37 or something. I think he's 37 years of age. He's had a really long, distinguished career with um, Como, with Fiorentina, with Roma, with Sampdori, where... He's really best known for. He'd go to Juve, he'd go on to Milan, and then he'd finish off with Piacenza. But he was, he was great, like a genuinely great defender. Chiro I think, was 29 at the point, but he's a little bit undersized. He's a little bit soft at times, but he was a really good defender. He was really good in the ball as well. Viecovod was just a monster. Just he was only 5'10, but he was built like a tank. He was incredibly strong really quick, super aggressive, like super aggressive, no fear in him at all. Um, his dad was a soldier in the Red Army. So he came from a fairly tough group. Um, Paulo Sosa, one of my favourite midfielders, Didier Deschamps winning his second European Cup. Antonio Conte, Gianluca Viali, Alessandro Del Piero and Fabrizio Ravinelli up front. Ravinelli right, Del Piero left and Viali through the middle. Viali obviously lost out in 92 in the final against Barcelona and was looking to get his first European Cup, as were most of his teammates, Bar Deschamps and Vladimir Jukovic. Jukovic had been part of the Red Star Belgrade team that had won it in 91. Uh, He was a great player. Now, he was little more than a... Utility player, unfortunately, in his time at Juve. Didn't quite establish himself. He might have... He was 26th, weird. He was really good for Sampdoria. That's where he came to first when he came to Italy. Really good for Sampdoria. Was good for Juve, but never fully established himself and made a spot his own. Was would play. I suppose that was part of what he was useful for. He could play here, there, and everywhere. Left side, right side, play in the middle, play defensively, play at full back. Just a great all-round player. Would will go on and play for Lazio and then Atletico Madrid and Inter and kind of move around every couple of years. But yeah, just a, a tremendously good player. Um, where are we looking? Here we go. Yeah, so Juve uh, go one up on 13 minutes. You've all seen that goal. Ravinelli rounds the keeper and slides at home. Yari Lippmanen equalises on 41 and it's 1-1 at full time. It's 1-1 after extra time. We go to penalties. Ferreira scores. Davids misses. Passato scores. Lippmanen scores. Padovano scores. Schulten scores. Yugovic scores. And Siloy misses. And uh, Juventus are European champions. First time since 1985. Last time. They've lost at least four, if not five, finals since then. Uh, Let me see. They lost five finals since then? They have lost five finals since then. They lost a couple of years later to Real. No, they lost the next year to Dortmund. Then they lost to Real the following year. So they got to three finals in a row and only won one of them. Then they lost to Milan in 3 and then they lost to two finals in the 2010s. They lost to Barca and they lost to, to Real. So they've been to five finals since the last time they won it and they've lost every one of them. They've got the worst record in European Cup finals, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they've been to nine European Cup finals. Now, bear in mind... Only Liverpool, Bayern, Milan and Real have been to more, but they've only won two. Seven losses. They lost in 73 and 83, then won it in 85, won it in 96 and have lost five since. Seven losses. Real Madrid, I think, would burn themselves down if they had that many losses. Only Liverpool, who are six and four, Bayern who are 6 and 5 Milan 7 and 4 and Real 14 and 3 which is a ludicrous record um have been to more finals United have been to 5 they've won more Inter have been to 6 they've won more Ajax have been to 6 they've won 4 so double the amount uh Benfica have the second worst record 2 and 5 they won in 61 62 and then lost their next 5 uh, including 63, 65, 68, which is the first time an English club won it, obviously. They also um, lost in 88 to PSV and 92 to Milan. Crazy. Um, all right, we'll do one more, then, will we? We'll do 96, 97, which obviously ends in in Dortmund winning it, and I've I've actually talked about the final and all that not that long ago on one of the nostalgia days. Um again we've got the group stage quarterfinal, semi-final, final. But this time we actually get some progress from an English club. So Rangers had played Alania Vladikavkav, now known as Spartak Vladikavkav. Maybe always known as Spartak by the Kavka, but at the time they were known as Alania. Uh, Rangers beat them 10 3 to advance through the uh, qualifying round. And that put Rangers in Group A. Now they finished bottom of Group A. They're in with Augsair, they're in with Ajax, Grasshopper Zurich. It's a tough group. It is a tough group. Um, They lose to everybody at different points. But they do manage to win one game. They do manage to beat Grasshopper through a go to two Ali McCoy's goals. At this point, they do have Gaza. Um, I think they had they obviously had Loudrup as well. At this point Rangers are really cooking on well, really cooking the books, but really cooking on, on Gas as well. And um they were very I remember they were very disappointed by this outcome. Auxerre. And Ajax go through both on twelve points. Grasshopper, third Rangers go out. Uh, Group B: Atletico Madrid, Dortmund, Vitoslas, and Steaua Bucharest. Atleti and Bayer and, and Atleti and Dortmund uh, see themselves through very comfortably. Both of them on thirteen points. The other two on four. Group C is where the interesting action is. So it's Juventus, it's United, it's Fenerbahce and it's Rapid Vienna. Now United have been dumped out embarrassingly, twice. First year, they didn't make any real noise at all. Second year was, you know, a bit dreary as well. Then Blackburn came along and really set everybody back. But this time, United make some real progress and they advance past the group stage. Now, they lose in Turin in the opening game. Then they beat Rapid Vienna. Then they go to Fenerbahce and win, which was huge. Then they lose at home to Fenerbahce. And it's their first ever home defeat in European football, which is a major thing. They lose at home to Juve, but then they go to Rapid Vienna and win. So the three wins are enough to see them through. At this point, Champions League has modernised and they're three points for a win. So they get through. Finally, then Group D, Porto, Rosenberg, Milan and Gothenburg. And everybody just expects it will be Porto and Milan. But Milan, injuries, absentees, lack of form, Lack of Capello, they fall apart, and they finish third. Rosenberg joined Porto in the knockout stage. So our quarterfinal draw, it's Dortmund-Auxerre, United-Porto, Ajax against Atletico, and Rosenberg against Juve. And United's good run continues. They hammer Porto 4-0 in the first leg. David May, Eric Cantona, Ryan Giggs and Andy Cole with the goals. They draw 0-0 in the second leg and now they're in a European Cup semi-final. Dortmund beat Auxerre 4-2 in aggregate. Sorry, 4-1 in aggregate. Ajax beat Atletico 4-3 in aggregate and Juve beat Rosenberg 3-1. So we get Dortmund versus United, we get Ajax versus Juve and the expectation here is that the winner of Ajax UV will go on and win this competition because they're the two most established teams at, at this level but Dortmund have won back-to-back league titles, United have won three or four league titles, they're both very good teams but Dortmund beat United 1-0 in each leg Tretzschock and Lars Ricken and they earn a spot in the final Juve beat Ajax 2-1 away and then hammer them 4-1 at home. So we're away to the 97 final. It's in Munich again, as the final had been a couple of years earlier. It's one of the premier stadiums. If you haven't seen a picture of the Olympia Stadion in Munich, do go and have a look at it. It's so unique. It's got this incredible roof that's almost like a tent roof like a circus tent roof on one side, like the material. It's not like metal. It's it's a fabric. Um, and it only covers sort of half the stadium. And one stand, it, again, it's like a, a cycling velodrome. One stand kind of goes way up and then it goes back. It's a really, really interesting stadium. And funnily enough, if I'm not mistaken, that is the Alliance Stadium in the background. That right? Is that right? Let me have a look. Directions. I think it is actually. I think it is the um, the alliance been built in the background of that picture. It doesn't matter either way. It's completely irrelevant to you and me. But anyway, we'll move on. Um, yeah, we go into this final, and I've been over this final. This there's just something about this game that I've always loved rewatching. The picture of the stadium from one end is actually the one to look at. You can get a real. A real view of this of the roof of what I'm talking about with the, the stands and the effects, kind of like a velodrome. Um it's just a shame that there's a running track, obviously, because it was it was an Olympic stadium, it needed a running track, but uh, it is what it is. Um yeah. Carl Hans Riedler puts Dortmund two goals up, Del Piero scores one to get Juve back in. It feels like the momentum is swinging back Juve's way. Otmar hits up makes a change brings on Lars Ricken and with his first touch of the ball he lobs the keeper from 40 yards and it's game over. Um what a team that Dortmund team was. Zammer, Muller, Reuter, Kohler, Reedler. Unbelievably good. But so was the so was the Juventus team. Uh Sergio Perini at right back, Juliano at left back. So both full backs have been been changed. Uh Paolo Montero has come in at centre back to add some toughness and aggression and well lunacy really. Uh Delivio's in midfield, Jugovic has come in, he's a starter now. Vieri and at are up front, the front three is broken up. Ravanelli left, went to Middlesbrough. Vialli left, went to Chelsea. Del Piero had a bit of an up and down season, didn't make the final, didn't make the start for the final. But I remember a World Soccer Magazine article about how Juve had planned for the departures of Ravinelli and, and Viali. And the, the two players they brought in to replace them um, were Christian Vieri, who was largely an unknown at that point Despite the fact he'd been knocking around for a few years, he'd come in from Atalanta and he was this bulldozer type of Ford. And then the one that they thought could be more of the, um, the subtle type, you know, the, the finesse type of Ford was Nicola Amoroso. And he'd been brought in from uh, Padova, uh, Padova, where they previously found Del Piero. Both of them had had such interesting careers and had really interesting careers. So if you look at uh, Nicola Amoroso, one year with Sampdoria, one year with Andrea, one year with Padova, six years with Juve, but spent a year on loan with Perugia and then went to Napoli on a co-ownership year. Then from there, he, he's 27 now. We're in 2001. He goes... Less than a year at Perugia, less than a year at Como, a year at Medina, a year at Messina, three years with Regina, a year with Torino in which he spends half the season on loan at Siena, a year with Parma and a year with Atalanta. So, like, Juve is the longest stop of his career. He's there six years, but he spends two years on loan. So a near 20-year career, four years is the longest he spent in one place. And that's nothing in comparison to Vieri, who might be the most transient man there's ever been in the history of the game. So as a youth player, right, as a youth player, he spends a year with Marconi Stallions, a year with Santa Lucia, a year with Prato, and a year with Torino. So four youth clubs. That season with Torino, he also makes a senior debut. At the end of that season, he leaves. He doesn't even stay two years. He leaves. He goes to Pisa. He's there a year. He goes to Ravenna. He's there a year. He goes to Venecia. He's there a year. He goes to Atalanta. He's there a year. And guess what? He goes to Juve. And guess what he does after a year? He goes to Atletico Madrid. And after a year, he goes to Lazio. Now, bear in mind... Lazio spent huge money to bring him in. 25 million to bring him in. And after a year, he leaves again. And he goes to Inter Milan. So we are now from 1987. We are now in the year 1999. And he's at a new club every year. 12 clubs in 12 years. He's still only 26. You would think, well, that's it. He won't move again. He did spend six years. To his credit, he spent six years at Inter and he was great for a lot of that spell. As he had been great for Atletico Madrid and really good for Lazio. Inter pay a world record fee to get him. He spends six years there. Then he joins Milan for a year. Then he spends a few months at Monaco, a few months at Sampdoria, a year at Atalanta, a year at Fiorentina, and another year with Atalanta. So in his entire career, which lasts 22 years, other than the six years he spends at Inter, he's at a different club every single year. And in the year 2006, he played for four different clubs. That is a remarkably unique career. I don't know of another player who was as good as he was at his best, who moved that often. Don't know of any other striker or any other player in any position who moved that often and was that good. Like normally the players that move like that are guys that can only get one-year contracts, but he was moving for big money like Juve signed him for 2.5 million a year later they sell him for 12.5 million a year later he moves for 25 million a year later he moves for 32 million so his value was going up and up and up and he was moving for significant money i think when he moved to to inter when you combined the fees he was the most expensive player of all time uh, that's obviously Change now players go for more in one move than he went for in all of his. But what a bizarre career, though. What a genuinely bizarre career. But he was such a good player, and he had such an interesting life. So he's born in Bologna, and then he moved to Australia as a youngster. And that's where Marconi Stallions are. Um his father. Was a was a former player, Roberto Vieri, and that's how he ended up in Australia. Roberto moved to play for Marconi Stallions. They moved so they moved to Sydney, uh, residing in Weatherall Park in the southwestern Sydney, if anyone knows the area. Went to Prairie Wood High School, and his father was known as Bobo. So obviously Robert, so he became known as Bobo. So if you ever wondered how he got the name. Um, He developed a love for cricket, a sport he still follows to this day. In an interview, he once stated he would have liked to have been a professional cricketer. His brother, Massimiliano Vieri, also became a professional footballer and was an Australian international, winning six caps. Uh, He moved to Juve for a time, um, had a couple of spells at Juve, had a spell with Napoli when they were in the lower leagues. and. Kind of bounced around some of the lower league uh, Italian clubs. But, yeah, he seems to have been a fairly decent player. He's now an assistant youth coach with Fiorentina. He's Italy's highest ever goal scorer in World Cups. Their ninth highest goal scorer of all time behind Riva, Miazza, Pi- Piola... Baggio, Del Piero, Balanchieri, Inzaghi, and Alto Belli. Uh, Of of those, only Inzaghi and Baggio played in the modern game. Riva as well, obviously, in the 70s, but we consider more from the 80s on as the modern game, yeah, he's the third highest scorer. Um, Hello, player. Amoruso didn't work out the same way, but Vieri was great. Just the strength, the size, the ability to just bully central defenders. Probably the most, other than Adriano, he might be the most powerful. Maybe Drogba as well. Although it's close, I'd say, with him and Drogba, and he was a better goal scorer than Drogba. It was a really good team. It's a really good team. And we'll just leave it there for today, I think. Um... Do you know what? We won't. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll do one more year. We'll do 97-98. And in doing that, I get to avoid the 98-99 season in United's travel. So we'll see you after this break because no gossip today because the gossip won't exist until later tonight or early tomorrow morning. So we'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll do one more year and then we're out. Take care. See you in a sec. Right, welcome back. So, yeah, we'll do 97-98 and we'll finish off with Real Madrid being crowned European champions for the seventh time in their history, but the first time in a long time. Obviously, everybody knows their history with the competition, but this was their first time winning it since 1966. So the tournament has expanded this year. So we go from four groups to six groups, and it becomes a little bit convoluted because only the winner is guaranteed to go through, and then the two best runners up also go through. So in Group A, it's Borussia. Dortmund, and this is also the first year, should point out, where there are multiple teams potentially getting in from the same leagues. So, for example, this year, we have Manchester United and Newcastle United. We have Juventus and we have Parma. We have Barcelona and Real Madrid. Um, so, Group A, Borussia Dortmund topped the group, the reigning defending champions. Five wins and one draw, 15 points. They're true. Parma finished second. Two wins, three draws, one defeat, nine points. Sparta Prague finished third. Galatasaray finished fourth. In Group B, Manchester United, who've kind of gotten the hang of this European thing now, top their group, 15 points. Juventus finished second with 12 points. Feynord third and Kosic from, I want to say Slovakia. Yeah, Slovakia uh, finished bottom with no points. Um, group C, Dinamo Kiev. Uh, having been forgiven for their flagrant cheating a couple of years earlier. Um, this is the team, if I'm not mistaken, with Shevchenko and Rebroff that kind of everybody was very excited by. PSV Eindhoven finished second with 11 points, Newcastle third with seven, and Barcelona finish bottoms. That's a really tough group that Newcastle got um, in their first season in the Champions League. Group D, Real Madrid, 13 points, Rosenberg, 11, Olympiacos, 5, Porto, 4. Bayern Munich, top Group E, ahead of Paris Saint-Germain on goal difference. Besiktas, third, IFK Gottenberg, fourth, both of them finish on six points. Monaco, top Group F, ahead of Bayer Leverkusen on goal difference. Sporting third, Uh, Leers from Belgium finish fourth. So, Bayer Leverkusen are the highest ranked second place team and Juventus are the, highest, uh, the, the second highest second place team. So, despite really good performances from PSG, Rosenberg, PSV and Parma, none of them go through. And to be fair, PSG can be rightly pissed about that. Like, 12 points, level on points of Bayern, go out on goal difference and unfortunately don't make it through. Um, to the knockout stage we go. Juventus against Dinamo Kiev. Juve are back-to-back finalists. They won it. They lost to Dortmund. They're expected to go far again. They're probably at this point seen as the best team in Europe. Um, They draw 1-1 in Turin. But then they go to Kiev and they win 4-1. And then hat Hattrick sees them through. Uh, Bayer Leverkusen take on Real. That game ends 1-1 in Leverkusen. In the second leg at the Bernabeu, it's Real who win 3-0. Christian Karambu, vital in both games, scoring in both games. Monaco play Manchester United and... United go out on away goals. A 0-0 draw in Monaco, a 1-1 draw at Old Trafford. David Trezeguet uh, making his name known with a goal in the fifth minute. Oli Gunnar Solskjaer got a lady, uh, late equal as a 53 minutes, but United couldn't find a second. And Bayern Munich 0, Borussia Dortmund nil in the first leg. Borussia Dortmund won, Bayern Munich 0 in the second leg. Borussia go through and remain on the path they hope to win back-to-back European Cups. But was not to be. They lost 2-0 in the Bernabeu, Fernando Morientes and Christian Karambu again, giving Dort- or giving Real the win, and then they go away to the Westfalenstadion and get the 0-0 they need to advance to the final. Juve demolished Monaco 4-1 in the first leg, and then lost 3-2 in the second leg. They were still in control and obviously went through pretty comfortably in the end. Uh, 6-4 in aggregate, but it, it was given. It gave them a bit of a shake. Um, into the final, it's Juve, it's Real, it's sporting royalty. The Juve team, Peruzzi, Torricelli, Juliano, Montero, to back three. You've got Delivio and Passato as wing-backs, so Torricelli and Passato dropped the year before, both back in. Um, you've got Deschamps and Davids in midfield. You've got Zidane behind Inzaghi and Del Piero. It's a hell of a team. Off the bench, you've got Amoruso. you've got Daniel Fonseca, you've got Conte, you've got taconardi Sorry, taconardi It's a really good team. Daniel Fonseca was one of my favourite players in the 90s. The Beaver. Brilliant. Brilliant for Cagliari, for Napoli, for Roma. Good for Juve, but never quite hit the heights. Was was towards the end. Was great for, for Uruguay. Played in that ninety five Copa America that won it, him and Enzo Franceschi with the stars. Didn't realise he worked as an agent now and represents Luis Suarez and Fernando Mussolera. And uh, in twenty sixteen he was named in the Panama Papers. So there you go. Um, But this uh, this Juve team was really good. But when you look at that Real team, I mean, that's incredible. Bodo Uldner, one of the great goalkeepers. Christian Panucci, schooled at Milan by Capello, by Maldini, by Beresi. Sensational defender. The two best Spanish centre-backs of all time, Manolo Sanchez and Fernando Hierro. Incredible. Roberto Carlos at left-back, midfield of Redondo, Carambu, and Seedorf, and then Raul behind Morientes and Miatovic. Apologies for Mor. On the bench, Davos, Suker, Savio, Santiago, Canizares. It's an unbelievable team. The final itself wasn't a great game. Miatovic scored the only goal on 66 minutes. Real were just about good value for their win. That team was built by Capello the year before he got dismissed because the football wasn't exciting enough. Your is took over, he won the competition, then he got sacked because his football wasn't exciting enough. A bizarre time, but amazing, absolutely amazing. And with that, I will bid you farewell because this dog is doing my head in. I may go see what she wants, and I will see you all on Friday. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. cast network